Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 107 of History of the Marine Corps, Defense of the Philippines, Part 3. Japanese forces occupied most of Luzon. U.S. and Philippine forces withdrew south to the thinnest part of the Bataan Peninsula, and they established a defensive line as a final attempt to stop the advancing enemy. 72 officers and 1,173 enlisted from more than 50 organizations joined the 4th Marines. This made them one of the most diverse Marine units ever to have existed. Despite the additional reinforcements, many newcomers to the 4th were sailors, and they had no experience with ground warfare. Marines were stuck between a rock and a hard place. In addition to fighting off the enemy, they had to train new troops on the basics of warfare, including how to load a rifle. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. MacArthur selected the last defensive line halfway down the Bataan Peninsula, near the northern base of Mount Maryvilles. This location was chosen for a couple of reasons. It is the narrowest part of the peninsula, and a dirt road travels from Bagak to Orion, which MacArthur planned to use as a supply route. The road provided a path for resources to be quickly delivered during battle but the boundaries of this line had a vulnerability. Mount Natib, a dormant volcano, split the defensive line and blocked communication between the 1st and 2nd Corps. Army Brigadier General Alan Clay McBride was responsible for a 40-mile section of the coastline of Bataan. This was a vital area to protect. If Japanese troops occupied this location, supply routes could be cut off making victory much more probable for the Japanese. McBride had a challenging time with his mission. His area of responsibility is covered in a jungle, adding to the challenge. To help guard this vital location, the Navy stationed troops to help McBride and defend the naval base at Maryville's. On January 9th, Admiral Rockwell ordered Navy Captain John DeZez to form an infantry battalion. He appointed the senior naval aviator, Commander Francis Bridget, as the battalion commander, 
and he assembled 450 sailors. 150 of them were his men from air. 130 were crewmen from the submarine Canopus, 80 were from the Cavite Naval Ammunition Depot, and 120 were general duty from Cavite and Maryville's. He also assigned 120 Marines from the 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, who were still on baton. The only U.S. troops in this improvised battalion with any ground combat training were the Marines from 3-4. Captain Earl L. Sackett, commanding officer of Canopus, stated, quote, Equipment was a serious problem. The Marines were, of course, ready for field duty, but the others were sailors and the Navy doesn't provide much equipment for land operations. However, rifles and ammunition of some sort were finally begged, borrowed, or stolen for most of the men. Their white uniforms were dyed to what was supposed to be khaki color, but turned out to be a sickly mustard yellow. Only about one canteen could be found for every three men. Perhaps two-thirds of the sailors knew which end of the rifle should be presented to the enemy and had even practiced on a target range, but field training was practically a closed book to them. The experienced Marines were spread thinly throughout each company, in the hope that through perception and example, their qualities would be assimilated by the rest. The Marines were part of Alpha Battery, commanded by Lieutenant William F. Hogaboom, and Charlie Battery, commanded by First Lieutenant William C. Holdridge. A detachment of two officers and 47 enlisted from the 4th Marines on Corregidor were called to Bataan and positioned with MacArthur's advanced command post. Their mission was to provide the interior guard. Commander Bridget understood the need for ground combat experience from the sailors, and he instructed Alpha Battery to serve as tactical instructors for the Naval Battalion. Despite this extra responsibility, Alpha and Charlie batteries were still in charge of the anti-aircraft defenses at Maryville's. The number of Marines who could help train the sailors was small, and the duty fell on the Marine NCOs. The lack of adequate staff left the Marines with insufficient resources for the upcoming battle. Charlie battery had a skeleton crew manning their 3-inch guns. Alpha Battery operated the 950 caliber machine gun posts in the hills around the harbor. With most Marines managing the anti-aircraft guns and training sailors, the majority of troops responsible for defending were Navy personnel. Alpha Battery teamed up with one officer and 65 sailors on January 16th. Charlie Battery teamed up with one officer and 40 men two days later. This inexperienced battalion was about to be tested. Japanese General Homa dedicated his main force of the 65th Brigade along the front of the U.S. 2nd Corps, located on the east half of the peninsula. The terrain along the east coast was open, allowing Japan to take advantage of any holes they could find in the defensive line. By January 11th, Japanese forces probed Parker's defenses, and found multiple vulnerabilities they could exploit. It was only a matter of time before they discovered the weakness caused by Mount Natib. By the 22nd, Japanese forces attacked Parker's position along the volcano slopes. 
all reserved forces were sent to the defensive line to stop the enemy's advancement. To prevent the defending forces from being cut off, Yusefi ordered a general withdrawal to the Bagak Orion defense line to be completed by the 26th. Wainwright's 1st Corps was in worse shape than the 2nd. On the 15th, Japanese forces probed the west coast, and they encountered very little resistance. Homa dispatched the 20th Infantry of the 16th Division to reinforce Japanese troops and penetrate the Bagok Road Junction. Many reserve units from the 1st Corps were sent to help out the 2nd, leaving Wainwright with substantially fewer resources than he needed to effectively hold the line. Although he was able to repulse the first enemy assault, fresh Japanese troops sent a few days later caused Wainwright's men to withdraw towards Bagok. In conjunction with the attack, Japan prepared for an amphibious assault four miles south of Bagok. During the middle of the night on the 22nd through the 23rd of January, 900 Japanese troops from the 2nd Battalion, 20th Infantry, headed towards their landing zone. This large force would have been one hell of a challenge for U.S. troops if it wasn't for a vigilant torpedo boat. While two landing crafts were en route, an offshore patrol spotted the enemy ships and engaged, sinking a couple of boats in the process. The American attack, combined with the night landing challenges, caused Japan to become discombobulated. Two-thirds of the unit landed eight miles south of their target. The remaining forces, comprised of seven officers and 294 men, reached their destination two clicks west of Maryville's. The Japanese forces fortunate to reach their intended destination did so without being seen by U.S. troops. They advanced through the jungles and headed to Lapai Point. Commander Bridget received word from the aircraft lookout on Mount Pukat about the advancing Japanese force. He ordered Holdridge and Hogaboom to check it out. Bridget called Platoon Sergeant Robert A. Clements to lead a platoon of available troops. This wasn't a well-trained force. When the platoon was heading towards their location, a sailor asked him, quote, Sarge, how do you get the bullets in this thing? Unquote. After a brief period of instruction, the sailor was taught how to use a rifle, and the platoon moved on. Although three patrols were happening simultaneously, they were never informed that other units were in the area. When Clements's platoon reached the beach, they discovered more than 150 Japanese rifles and canvas bags filled with water. As they were returning to report what they found, they were ambushed. Japanese machine guns opened up on the platoon. Clements and a Navy lieutenant were hit during the engagement. The patrols commanded by Hogaboom and Holdridge heard the gunfire, and they headed towards the fight. Along the way, they ran into Japanese patrols and drove the enemy back to the beach. Lieutenant Holdridge and his Marines stumbled on Japanese forces setting up artillery in a clearing. The detachment engaged, taking out about a dozen enemy soldiers. PFC Quentin R. Sinton was hit by machine gun fire and killed. After a brief exchange, Holdridge returned to the rear and met with Clements. The two Marine units teamed up 
and withdrew to a blocking position on the ridge between Marivals and Longoskawayan Point. The following day, the Marines advanced on the Japanese again. Enemy resistance was strong, and the inexperienced sailors continued to learn about land warfare through trial by fire. During the firefight, enemy forces threw a grenade at U.S. troops. A Marine shouted, Grenade! and immediately dove for cover. But instead of getting out of the way, sailors looked around and they asked, Where? before it exploded. Fortunately, no one was killed, and the sailors learned to immediately take cover next time. Hogaboom and Holdridge later met that night and compared notes about their patrols. They estimated that they were up against 200 well-armed Japanese troops. Both leaders understood that they didn't have an adequate force to stop the advancing enemy. They requested reinforcements on January 25th. A machine gun platoon and an 81mm mortar platoon from the 4th Marines were sent to help fortify their positions. The reinforcements were commanded by 1st Lieutenant Michael E. Peshik. With fresh troops, the lieutenants moved towards the enemy. Hogaboom headed towards Lapai Point and didn't run into Japanese troops. Holdridge headed towards Longoskawayan Point and ran into an ambush, suffering heavy losses. Holdridge was injured during the ambush, along with 11 other enlisted Marines. PFC Warren J. Carver was killed during the surprise attack. The Marines withdrew, but they reported enemy positions to Corregidor. At night, 12-inch mortars from the island were unleashed on Longoskawayan Point. On the 27th, the patrols were relieved by the 2nd Battalion, 57th Philippine Scout Regiment. They continued to push back the Japanese forces. For two days, the scouts continued the fight. On the 29th, the U.S. minesweeper Quail left Marivals and helped with the attack. She closed in from 2,200 yards to 1,300, firing at Japanese soldiers hiding in nearby caves and undergrowth along the shores. The Philippine scouts, supported by marine mortar and machine gun fire, bravely pushed through Japanese forces and cleared the area of the enemy. U.S. troops suffered 11 killed and 26 wounded. Casualties for the Philippine scouts were similar and they had 11 killed and 27 wounded. Japan lost its entire landing force. At this point in the battle, the threat to Marivols was temporarily eliminated. Japan's counterattacks were successfully beaten back by artillery, naval firepower, and a few P-40s on the peninsula. Japan's advancement along the Bagok Orient Line slowed down considerably and the butcher's bill they had to pay for its progress was astronomical. The casualty rate for Japanese troops was so high that the offensive line was considered ineffective. On February 13th, Homa had to rethink his plan. He withdrew forces to a string of blocking positions, regrouped his men, and requested reinforcements. Japan began its second attack phase a few days later, with an even larger force. This time, Japan focused its efforts on Corregidor. 
Marines on the island needed all the support they could receive. However, the troops in the area were physically weak. On February 18th, the Surgeon General of Yusefi stated that only 55% of Bataan's defenders were combat efficient due to malaria, dysentery, and general malnutrition. A detachment from the USS Canopus, sailors from the Cavite Naval Ammunition Depot, and another nine officers and 327 enlisted serving as general duty were transferred to the 4th Marines. Despite the reinforcements, Marines faced another threat besides Japanese troops. Disease. Charlie Battery Commander, Lieutenant Simpson, who was still in Bataan, stated, quote, The heat was terrific. Malaria cropped out among the men every day or so. Yet we had to stay manned every day, all day, because of constant enemy air activity. Unquote. Malaria took a toll on the Marines. Charlie Battery had to leave one gun entirely unmanned to have a fully staffed crew on the others. Marines also received reinforcements from the Philippine troops and stragglers from damaged or sunken boats. Over 700 Philippine Army Air Cadets joined the 4th. The 4th Marines were one of the most diverse Marine units ever to have existed. 72 officers and 1,173 enlisted from more than 50 organizations joined their ranks. But despite the reinforcements, only a few had any infantry experience. To compensate for this lack of training, Marines were spread thin. They helped them train, and leadership hoped that the inexperienced troops could learn from the Marines by example. There wasn't one company in the regiment with an all-Marine force. Japan targeted Corregidor throughout all of February and early March. During the first week of March, the U.S. commander on Fort Frank received a letter from Japan demanding its surrender. Quote, Carabao will be reduced by our mighty artillery fire. Likewise, drum. After reduction of Carabao and drum, our invincible artillery will pound Corregidor into submission. Batter it. Weaken it. Preparatory to a final assault by crack Japanese landing troops. Unquote. The demand was taken lightly. Although Japan continued to bombard the island, their attack wasn't effective enough to stop the 4th from continuing to build defenses. Trenches and gun positions throughout the island continued to be constructed. Barbed wire was set up, and improvised minefields, made from aerial bombs, were scattered across all possible landing points. On March 15th, Japan revisited its strategy and refocused its priority on taking Bataan. For the next nine days, they launched a persistent attack on Corregidor. Japanese artillery spread their attack over 24 hours to stop the 4th from getting any rest. Bombardments were launched every 30 minutes throughout the night. Marines gave the Japanese artillery the nickname Insomnia Charlie. There was also a balloon floating over the island. Japan used it to spot defenses. The nickname Marines gave the balloon was Peeping Tom. By the end of March, 
The biggest problems facing Bataan's defenders were malnutrition and disease. The daily rations for the troops were a mere 1,000 calories per day. At the current rate, food would only last until the end of June. Wainwright asked for more supplies and stated, quote, With ample food and ammunition, we can hold the enemy in his present position, I believe indefinitely. Unquote. By April 1st, Wainwright was faced with an effective Japanese blockade, and he realized that he wouldn't receive the supplies he requested. Without any options, he further reduced rations. The 4th Marines were limited to only 30 and a half ounces of food per day. The quotas were broken down to 8 ounces of meat, 7 ounces of flour, 4 ounces of vegetables, 3 ounces of beans and cereals, 2.5 ounces of rice, 3 ounces of milk, and about 3 ounces of miscellaneous foodstuff. PFC Ben L. Lohman recounted his thoughts on the rations. Quote, we were hungry all the time. We ate mule meat when the mules were killed in the bombing. They'd bring the carcasses down and we'd eat them. Unquote. Marines lost up to 40 pounds during Japan's bombardment. The enemy's 14th Army commenced its attack on Bataan on April 3rd. Homer received his reinforcements from the 4th Division in Shanghai. He also received a strongly reinforced infantry regiment from the 21st Division. His artillery doubled, which included 240mm howitzers that had considerably longer reach. He also received two bomber regiments to provide air power. The attack on Bataan was non-stop. U.S. and Philippine forces had little chance of success, and four days later sent the last of their reserves to the front lines. Disorganized troops trying to flee the constant bombardments flooded the roads and trails headed to Maryville's. Only a few organized soldiers held positions and fought off the advancing Japanese forces. General Edward King had little option but to seek surrender terms. His aide documented the situation in his diary. Quote, April 8th, Wednesday. The army cannot attack. It is impossible. Area is congested with stragglers. General King has ordered all tanks thrown and arms destroyed and is going forward to contact the Japanese and try to avert a massacre. Unquote. General King ordered all munitions dumps destroyed. The explosion was so massive that troops on Corregidor, Bataan, and Maryville's harbor all felt the tremor of the blast. Quote, the southern end of Bataan was a huge conflagration which resembled more than anything else a volcano in violent eruption. White hot pieces of metal from exploded shells and bombs shot skyward by the thousands in every conceivable direction. Various colored flares exploded in great numbers and charged off on crazy courses much the same as a skyrocket, which has run wild on the ground. Unquote. Throughout the night, the water between Bataan and Corregidor was hit with falling debris. On April 9th, at noon, General King received his answer regarding the terms of his surrender. 
Japan offered nothing for King's capitulation. The terms were unconditional. King didn't have an option. He accepted Japan's terms and asked that his men be treated fairly. Bataan had fallen to Japan, and over 75,000 defenders were now under Japanese control. With Bataan out of the way, Japan focused on taking Corregidor Island next. There was some discussion on the best approach. Many Japanese officers wanted to immediately advance towards the island. However, Japan needed more landing crafts to transport the appropriate troops to shore. They requested additional landing barges and boats from other areas and patiently waited until they arrived. This wasn't an easy task. Japan had to move slowly to avoid the discovery of its ships. If Marines spotted the incoming transport vessels, they would be destroyed immediately, jeopardizing Japan's conquest of the Philippines. On April 14th, the first few boats managed to move into Manila Bay. They traveled at night and under cover of Japan's intense shelling of Corregidor to avoid the defenders seeing the move. Since Japan was limited to moving only a few boats at night, gathering the necessary transports for the attack took more than three weeks. Homa's 4th Division also faced a malaria outbreak, which added to the delay. Japanese aircraft flew 614 missions leading up to the amphibious landing. They dropped 1,701 bombs, totaling over 365 tons of explosives. In conjunction with the aerial attacks, nine 240mm howitzers, 34 149mm howitzers, and 32 other artillery pieces bombarded Corregidor. On May 2nd, one Japanese attack hit the battery Geary magazines. The explosion caused massive casualties, and a Marine rescue party was sent to help the survivors. Major Francis Williams and Captain Austin Schaffner were the first two Marines on site. They suffered severe burns on their hands, faces, and ankles. But despite their injuries, both officers refused to be evacuated. Leading up to the landing, Japan selected the 61st Infantry Regiment to be the first force to land on Corregidor. They were supported by the 23rd Independent Engineer Battalion and the 1st Battalion of the 4th Engineer Regiment. Once on shore, elements of the 1st Company, Independent Mortar Battalion, the 51st Mountain Gun Regiment, and the 3rd Mortar Battalion would provide gunfire support. On May 4th, a Philippine civilian headed towards Corregidor with intelligence for the Marines. He carried a note that read, quote, Expect enemy landing on the night of 5-6 May. Unquote. On May 5th, Colonel Howard called in his senior officers and filled them in on the intelligence. After a lengthy discussion, Howard let the men sleep until one hour before dawn for much-needed rest. As soon as Reveille was sounded, all defenses were fully manned. Major Max Schaefer commanded the regimental reserves. The unit consisted of two companies, 
Oscar, and Papa. Schaefer summoned Sergeant Gerald A. Turner into his headquarters. When Turner arrived, he asked, quote, Well, Major, what's the trouble now? Unquote. Major Schaefer replied, quote, It may be a long, long night for you. The reason I've called you down here is because we need a second platoon, and you're it. Unquote. He promoted Turner to a lieutenant and gave him command of around 35 Philippine Army officer cadets, formed into a platoon of three squads. Before Turner left, Schaefer said, quote, Don't go out and try to be a hero. I want you to look after these kids and take care of them. Unquote. On May 5th, Japanese Colonel Gambachi Sato assembled the 61st Infantry to the left flank at Lamai Beach. Japanese troops, quote, sang softly the high, thin, haunting melody of Prayer in the Dawn, unquote, and climbed into 19 landing craft for the assault. They brought five tanks with them and were expected to land at 2300. The last few minutes of shelling were intense for the Marines. The bombardment ended with phosphorus shells. After the attack, there was an eerie three to four minutes of silence. The calm before the storm. At 2100, sensitive sound locators on Corregidor picked up the noise of many barges warming up their motors near Lamai Beach on Bataan's east coast. An hour and 45 minutes later, seven Japanese landing crafts were nearing the beach containing 790 enemy troops. Captain Lewis H. Pickup watched as Japanese troops landed and headed for his men's positions. Corregidor's defenders opened fire on the incoming enemy, and they cut down many enemy troops as they rushed inland. But this wasn't enough to stop the invasion, and shortly after, Japanese troops made it to shore. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will dig into the final part of the defense of the Philippines. My schedule has been pretty open, so you won't have to wait as long. Work slowed and hockey is over, so I had a lot of time this week. The next episode is already written. I just need to edit, record, and publish it. I'll try to push it out later this week. This week's audiobook is Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives by Siddharth Kara. I've been on an audible kick for the past couple of weeks, and I've gone through a few books. I recently completed Cobalt Red, which was an eye-opener for me. This book reviews the mining practices of cobalt in the Congo. Congo accounts for almost three-quarters of the cobalt supply in the world. This mineral is used in every lithium-ion battery out there. It ensures cathodes don't easily overheat or catch on fire and extends the range and durability of electric vehicles and increases battery life in personal electronics. I'm willing to bet that at least 95% of you are listening to this podcast on a device that uses cobalt. The issue with this mineral is that it is mined using slave labor. This book is pretty disturbing, 
and I spent many nights internalizing what I just read compared to how I live my life. I think most of us will agree that slavery is an abhorrent practice. But how many of us are willing to give up our rechargeable devices after learning that slave labor is a big part of the process? I doubt it's many. This book visits multiple mines throughout the Congo. From industrial-sized cobalt mines to small satellite sites deep in the mountains. It's a fascinating read. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.